Good morning, Transit Church. How's everyone doing? We good? Hey, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Nick, one of the pastors here at the Transit. And today we're continuing, as that video showed, our series through the book of Exodus entitled Redemption. And we're looking at how the Israelite story of redemption is our story of redemption in Christ Jesus, how Jesus Christ frees us from the sins that enslave us and the wounds we carry. And what we saw last week is that uh, where we're at in our journey through Exodus is that although the Israelites were taken out of Egypt, Egypt wasn't necessarily taken out of them just yet. And and today we're going to be in Exodus 33 through 34, so if you have your Bibles, feel free to turn there. But last week, it serves us well to kind of paint the picture of where we're at come Exodus 33. And so what happened last week with Jeff unpacked was the the infamous account of the golden calf. So what happened last week is is Moses leaves for a couple weeks to go to the mountain to receive the law. And for the first time uh, in this new journey called freedom for the Israelites, they're left alone without their fearless leader, Moses. So they begin to doubt And this is a good opportunity for them as they've been romanticizing the past to maybe start putting a trust elsewhere, looking back to the gods they used to worship. In Egypt, Aaron is left to babysit. Imagine how that conversation went between Moses and Aaron. So Aaron, here's the deal. I'm going to be gone for a couple couple weeks. I need you to watch the Israelites. Uh, Nap time is usually around 12. Don't worry about food. Usually rains down from heaven. Uh, so we got that covered. Oh, by the way, by the way, I almost forgot this. Make sure they don't break any of the Ten Commandments we just got. Can you, can you make sure they don't, they don't do that? Um, and, and that's exactly what we see is that the Israelites uh, uh, ran full sprint back to the gods that they worshipped when they were enslaved in Egypt. The same Israelites who uh, uh, saw the Lord's power to save parted uh, a sea that they could walk through. Uh, They daily have seen God uh, rain down his abundant provision upon them. Uh, The Lord, they've seen his glorious presence lead and guide them. The Israelites are literally drowning in the overflow and the abundance of God's love, his care, his provision for them. And they decide to craft a silly, lifeless metal cow and worship it and worship it, doing exactly what they did when they were slaves in Egypt. And so there's two things that that stick out to me is that one, the reason this is so audacious is that they literally broke the covenant vows they made days prior. Literally broke the vows. It's like, look at at Exodus 24.3. Look at Exodus 24.3 with me. A verse will be on the screen. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And the people answered with one voice and said, and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We're with you, God. Uh, everything you say will do. The, you will be our God. We will be your people. What, what they're doing there is they're enacting a covenant. They're pledging their allegiance to God. God has spoken to them and said, I will be your God. And they respond and call back to God and say, we will be your people. It's a, it's a, they're ratifying a covenant. That's what you do when you get married. They're saying, I do, and I do. That the people of God are people called upon by God to call upon God. God. So they broke the covenant vows, the vows they made days prior, but it's not just that. It's not just that. They pledge allegiance elsewhere. That's what they're doing. You, you understand? That's what we were looking at idolatry last week. That's what idolatry is, churches. It's, it's not just turning from God. It's about where you turn. It's a pledge of allegiance. It's an act of worship. That's what idolatry is. It's not just turning, breaking the vows that we've made to God or, or the vows that he's made to us, but we're surrendering our lives in a, a, to another in an act of worship. This is what uh, they do in Exodus 32.4. We looked at this last week. 
And he received from them, uh, he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it, that's Aaron, with a graving tool, made a golden calf. And listen to this, listen to this. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. These are your gods. They do the unthinkable. They do the unthinkable. They look at uh, this, this, this idol, this god, this, this bovine that they crafted, and they say, this is the God who rescued us. This is our redeemer, our provider, our protector. Basically, what they're saying is, all right, God, we're with this cow now. That's who we're with. We're, we're the cow people, okay? That's who, that's who we serve. That's who we exist to glorify and worship. And before we think that's absurd and ridiculous, we realize that that's exactly what we do. That's exactly what we do with the click, with the bottle, with, with, with a, a tray of Oreos. That's what we do. Because the call of, a, of, of all of our addictions and all the sin and temptation we face is a call to come and worship at the table. The call of every addiction we face is, is come to me, all you who are heavy laden and burdened, and I will give you rest. That's the call of the, the addictions that we face. And we're, every time we're tempted, we're at a crossroads where we either pledge our allegiance to God and say, God, help me to find in you what I'm trying to find in a tray of Oreos, or you go and you feast until, until you pass, pass out or something. Or, or maybe it's something far worse than that, right? That's what idolatry is, and that's what's happening here. We're all guilty of this. Their story is our story. So what happens is Moses is up on the mountain, and he hears singing and, and, and descends. And by the way, it's a good day for Moses. This is like the highlight of his career, right? He's like, we did it. The covenant's enacted. I got the documents right here, the Ten Commandments. This seals the deal. This is the marriage certificate. He's, he's probably singing himself down the mountain. This is a great day. And he comes, and what he sees is the people partying and worshiping a golden calf. And listen, they're not partying like conservative Christians, okay? They're not, they're not playing 91.9 in the background and handing out grape juice to everybody, okay, at the party. They, literally, scholars would suggest that this is a, a, a drunken orgy, to put it bluntly. That's what's happening here. That's how pagans worshiped in ancient Near Eastern culture in Egypt. That's what they're doing. That's why when Moses sees this, he loses his mind and says, how could you do this in light of God's faithfulness to you? Days prior, you, 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 go, you revert right back to those old patterns and those old ways of thinking. So Moses shatters uh, uh, the Ten Commandments, and, uh, and the Lord is furious as well, furious as well. And listen, what we learned last week is that sin is, is awful, transit church. Sin is awful, and a holy God, his holiness necessitates that he can have nothing to do with, with unrepentant sinners. 3,000 people fell that day, and a plague fell upon Israel. That's how awful sin is. And the Lord, for a certain period of time, is, is outside the camp now. And that's where we're at in our text is, listen, is that the Israelites, because of their idolatry, have one gigantic mess on their hands. One gigantic mess on their hands. And the question that they're facing is how in the world is this God, this Lord, going to respond to our unfaithfulness, our, our act of treason? How is he going to respond? Is he going to turn and walk away like we did, or will he stay? Or will this God stay faithful to an, to an unfaithful people? And what we'll see in this text is that the Israelites hope and our only hope in our lives is not, un, is not our unchanging and unwavering faithfulness to God, but his unchanging, steadfast love and faithfulness to us. That's our hope. That's our hope. So let's pray and we'll, we'll dive in here. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you, God, that you are a God who is merciful and gracious, a God who is slow to anger, a God who is abounding in steadfast love. 
forgiving iniquities and transgressions. Thank you, God, for that. We're here today uh, for you, to glorify and to honor you, and we pray, Lord, that you give us eyes to see your glory. Would you make much of your son Jesus today? Help us to see uh, your grace and your love and your riches, Lord. May, may uh, uh, you just overwhelm us, overwhelm us with your glory this morning here. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come in power, you would transform lives here this morning. And ultimately, I pray, Lord, that you would increase and I would decrease. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, we've got a lot to cover. Exodus 33, verse 1. Let's dive in. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but... I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. So Israel has been camped out at the base of Mount Sinai for a little bit, and Moses gets marching orders. Uh, God tells him, hey, it's time to pack up camp. Uh, you're, you're, you're to go to the promised land. And he tells Moses exactly what he told him pretty much uh, in, in Exodus 24. Go to the promised land. Drive out all the ites, all your enemies. Drive them out and, and feast on some organic milk and honey. It's going to be, you're just going to feast. It's going to be awesome. But listen, there's one caveat this time where God says, he says, but I'm not going with you. My presence can't go with you. Why? Because there's unrepentance in the camp. He says, he says, lest I consume you. He says, you are a stiff-necked people, meaning, meaning uh, like a beast of burden. When the master is saying, you need to go this way, you're not, you're refusing to bend your will to the will of the master. You're refusing to say, thy will be done. You're saying, my will be done. You're a stiff-necked people, unrepentant. A holy God can have nothing to do with an unrepentant people. He's saying, I can't, I can't go with you. And what this is, an illustration of this, is like when a spouse is married to someone who's repeatedly unfaithful, not honoring the vows that they made on their wedding day, and the spouse finally says, listen, we're going through a period of separation, I can no longer go with you if this is how this is going to happen. My heart can't take it. I'm taking the kids and I am leaving, putting that person who's been unfaithful at a crossroads. And now the question they face with is, do I choose my sin and lose my spouse? Or do I choose my spouse and lose my sin? It cannot be both. And transit church, when it comes to us and the Lord and our idolatry, it cannot be both. Cannot be both. Hey, God's okay with some golden calves, right? What's the big deal? God says that's not how that's not how a covenantal relationship works. Throughout the Bible, throughout the Bible, the call to the people of God is repent and live, sin and die. Repent and live sin. And I look at Ezekiel 18, 30 through 32. I mean, this is, this is magnificent here. Therefore, I will judge you, a house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? The call the Lord is making through the prophet in this text is saying, listen, Death, that's your choice. You are choosing death when you choose to sin. You're choosing death when you choose false worship. Repent. Repent and live. It's your choice. You're choosing your own death. Verse 32, for I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. <laughs> 
It doesn't bring God delight to say my presence is going with you. God, doesn't, God has no delight in that. He, has a, he, says, he says, for I have no pleasure in the death of anyone. And the call is to repent, repent so that you might live. And so that's the crossroads uh, that Israel is facing right now. That's the crossroads they're facing right now. Repent and live or refuse to repent and lose the presence of God. Verse 4, how would Israel respond? And I find it surprising how they responded. Verse 4, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. What sticks out to me there is in verse 4, what the text says is that this was a disastrous, devastating word for the people of God. They grieved, they mourned, but it's surprising because what God is saying is literally, you'll have everything you want. Go to the promised land, the promised land full of honey and milk and riches, but I'm not going with you. You can have all my blessings with the blessing of my presence. And that to the Israelites, to the people of God, that was disastrous. That rocked their world. They mourned. They wept. And my, my question to you this morning, would that be a disastrous word to you? God gives us everything we want, everything the American dream could give us, right? Perfect family. Our kids actually listen to us. Say, yes, sir, I'll do it right away. Oh my gosh, this is amazing, right? You have your, uh, your dream job. Uh, you, you play Fortnite for a living. <laughs> and you make like a million bucks a month and your commute is from your bed to your couch and you just feast on Mountain Dew and potato chips and make a living that way, right? And your wife's okay with that career. Uh, so that's a miracle in and of itself. Uh, American dream, you have like a 10,000 square foot house on 10,000 acres, but yet somehow you're still close to everything that you need to be, to be close to. And you have like a live-in barista who every morning uh, roasts beans and then grinds them up and makes you the perfect cup of coffee. Somebody say, preach. Preach, Nick. Um, what if you could have all of that, but you didn't know Jesus? You didn't know God. Would that be disastrous for you? Is the cry of our heart, is the cry of the heart of Nick Mudrzo, uh, the cry of the psalmist who writes, in Psalm 73, 25, whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Is God the delight of our heart? Is God our promised land? Is God our promised land? Is he the treasure hidden in the field? And when it comes to our redemption, you know, we're going through these, uh, we, we launched our redemption groups. It's been marvelous. God is showing up in mighty ways. Just so cool to see all that. And so when it comes to us uh, being freed from these sins and these addictions that are enslaving us, my question would be, why do we want to be set free from that? I was at a, uh, a pastor retreat a couple weeks ago. One of the breakout sessions turned into a mild intervention for one of the former ministry leaders there. And he opened up and was sharing about a lifelong uh, a struggle that he had with a certain addiction. And, and, and some of the, the pastors there were, were asking him questions. And some of the questions went along this line saying, hey, bro, have you ever stopped to think, what has this addiction cost you? What does this cost you? Uh, hey, if you, if you don't start getting serious about this, what will it cost you? 
Hey, what's it going to take? What steps are you willing to take to be free from this? And those are good questions, right? Those are good questions. But one guy, I almost, I almost screamed out. I was like, oh, preach it. When he asked this question, he said, he just looked at him. He said, like, however many words it was, he says, why do you want, why do you want to get sober? Is, is God the reason you want to get sober? Is the reason you want to be free from this because you don't want to be embarrassed? If this gets found out, is the reason you want to be set free from this because it might be uh, costing you your job. It might be hurting those you love. These are all good reasons, but it's the primary reason because you want God more than anything else. And this enslaving sin and addiction is robbing you. It's, it's, you're inviting something in that is casting out the presence of God in your life. Is that why you want to be free from that? That's a whole different question. That's a whole different motivating factor. When we turn to our idols, we're pouring acid on our souls, our souls which are created for fellowship with God. We're adding, adding calluses to an already calloused heart and is robbing us of Jesus and the abundant life he promised us. See, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote an awesome book or talked about the, this idea of the cost of discipleship, that there's a cost in following Jesus. Dallas Willard has a piece on the cost of non-discipleship. What does it look like to not follow Jesus? What does it look like to not repent and live? And he says this, this is marvelous. He says, non-discipleship costs abiding peace, a life penetrated throughout by love, faith that sees everything in the light of God's overriding governance for good, hopefulness that stands firm in the most discouraging of circumstances, power to do what is right and withstand the forces of evil. And I love this last line. In short, non-discipleship costs exactly that abundance of life Jesus said he came to bring. The call of God in the midst of our enslaving addictions is I have more to offer. I have more and better to offer you than what you are bound down to, to worship. Turn to me and live and find life abundantly. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I come that you may have life. Repent and live. Turn. Turn to me. And so returning uh, to our text, the Israelites mourn and, listen, they, they wept, they mourn. There, were, there was contrition, but there was also some steps they took, some external uh, indicators of the internal change of heart. They made a choice to, to throw in their ornaments and their jewelry to surrender those to the, the living God and an uh, act of repentance and a showing of Repentance, there's a change of heart. It wasn't just weeping over their sins. It was contrition, but also a choice they made to turn, to turn and follow the Lord. And so what happens next is uh, we're going to skip ahead to verse 12, but in between where we're at in verse 12 is Moses goes to the tent of meeting, which now is outside the camp. God is no longer dwelling in the midst of people. It's outside the camp. Moses goes and, and everyone kind of watches and sees. It kind of reminds me of when I was in trouble as a kid and my mom would go intercede to my dad who was very angry and they try to figure out what my punishment was going to be. And my mom kind of act as my intercessor and my mediator and say, hey, you know, alleviate the punishment. I'm sitting at the foot of my room like, hey, what's, what's going on? It's going to be good. And that's kind of the, the vibe we get here. Moses meeting with the Lord face to face and he intercedes on behalf of the people of God. And this is what he says in verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you, 
in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. Uh, it's interesting here, Moses is, 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 is uh, interceding on behalf of God's word, saying, God, these are the promises that you have made. That's how we intercede. We intercede God's, uh, uh, we rest in God's promises. We say, God, in your word, it says this. Now would you act upon what you have already promised? That's what Moses is doing here. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And Moses said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For now shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people. Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. So what we see here is Moses uh, maybe, maybe on, the, on the floor in the tent of the meeting through tears and sobs, begging and pleading to God that his presence would not leave his people. He's calling uh, God back to his word, to the promises that God had made. And what he's doing here, Moses is essentially saying, listen, is that, listen, is that the whole point of the Exodus was your presence, this is the whole point of the redemption, this redemptive story of the people of God is that you redeemed us to yourself. Not just that you rescued us from the tyranny of Pharaoh and slavery that we are in, but that you've called us to yourself. So if we lose your presence, we lose everything. Everything's at stake here. And what's interesting is he says, uh, this essentially what Moses is saying is that this is what makes us distinct, that from every other nation on the world is your presence, not the law not the moral code you gave us, your presence, your presence with us. That's what makes us distinct. And uh, church, that's the purpose of our redemption in Christ Jesus. The, the work that Christ came to do on our behalf is, is the ministry of reconciliation. See, see, the end of the gospel is that we're reconciled to God, that we can, uh, like Moses here, uh, it says in Exodus, he knew God face to face. We can be ushered into uh, the presence of the, the king of the universe and talk to him like a son to a father. That's what Christ did. That's the, the end goal of our redemption. That's what we get through Jesus Christ, not just the forgiveness of our sins, not just justification and sanctification. We get God. We get God. That's the end goal of reconciliation. Here's the crazy part is that uh, God said yes. God said Yes, I love that. Here's an interesting formula. We can over-theologize. Over That's not a word, but we can kind of overthink some stuff. Here's, here's a simple formula we see in the text. Moses prays, God answers, future of Israel changed forever. Moses intercedes, God hears and answers, the future for the people of God is forever changed. And before we try to overthink that and say, well, what happened anyways, or, you know, whatever, you know, that's a whole another discussion for another time. What we see in the text, Moses prays, God answers, future change. And I think a lot of times the reasons we don't pray is because we don't believe that. And if we believe that if we would be on our face interceding for those that we love and God would actually act upon our, our, our cries for help or for the neighbor that doesn't know Jesus or for uh, the family member that is struggling with whatever, that, that we, if we believe that God would act upon that, we wouldn't stop praying, church. We wouldn't stop praying. And listen, when God starts to answer prayers, and I'll do another Shameless plug for Paul Miller's book, The Praying Life. If you haven't read it, you need to re read it. Every time I preach, I have to do a commercial about that because it's so good. But 
What's crazy is when you start praying and you start realizing that God is a, God, is a good father who loves to give, give good gifts to his children, he answers prayers, crazy prayers. And then all of a sudden he'll answer prayers and you're like, oh my gosh, I didn't know he was going to answer that. If I would have known, I would have added another zero to the end of that prayer. <laughs> Maybe a couple zeros. But he showed up and he answered that prayer. And see, what we see here, Moses interceding on behalf of the people of Israel. And by the way, Jesus Christ is a truer and better Moses who intercedes now on behalf of, of his beloved children, right, for us. We have that high hope of the high priest at the right hand of the Father interceding on our behalf. Love that. But we see what Moses does here is all of a sudden the prayer was answered. He says, oh, wow. Whoa, that, I'm on, I'm on a roll here right? God answered this prayer. This is amazing. That creates a thirst and a, and a hunger for more, right? For more. And uh, Moses, I think, is so pr- surprised by the fact that that prayer got answered that he blurts out another prayer. And uh, he says this in verse 18. Moses said, after the prayer was answered, he says, uh, well, please show me your glory. I love that prayer, church. I love that prayer. Uh, Moses is asking for a, a tidal wave. He's asking for an avalanche, right? And, and there isn't uh, fear, there isn't trepidation asking that. He's saying, he's saying, man, Lord, show me more of yourself. And that's what's so interesting here is if we look at Moses's request, he didn't ask for more of God's blessings. He didn't say, wow, I'm on a roll here. God just answered that prayer. The whole future of Israel is going to be changed. Uh, God, can you get me a new chariot? 10 horsepower, chrome wheels, you know, surround sound, whatever. He didn't ask for that. He said, I want more of you, God. That's what he prayed. Church, are we praying prayers like that? We're praying, God, show me more of your love. Show me more of your grace. Show me more of your glory. I want you. That's his heart. That's his heart. I love that. I love that. Didn't ask for more God's blessing. He asked for more of God. This is what Arthur Pink says. This is both this prayer, seeing and and beholding and, and God showing us his glory. This is both the longing of the redeemed. This should be the longing of our hearts. It's to see Jesus, to see God in his glory. And it's also the goal of our redemption, to behold the glory of God. Such is the overflow, the outflow of real and close communion with God, that the more we know of him, the more we desire to know. The more we know of him, the more we desire to know. Moses here doesn't ask for more of these horizontal blessings. He asks for God, show me your glory. And what's interesting here too is the Lord's response to Moses' request is in, uh, in verse 19. Uh, Moses, how dare you ask that? I'm tired of your, your, your begging and your, and your pleading. That's, a, that's an offensive prayer. Uh, you should, you should pray more, pray more uh, theologically sound prayers. Uh, and then maybe even that's a selfish prayer. You should, no, no, I think God got a big smile on his face, right? I said, okay. Like a, like a father who hears his, his son say, hey, I want to I wanna hang out with you, right? And uh, when I was a little kid, um, whenever it snowed out, my dad was a police officer. So whenever there was snow on the ground, he would work on his, I don't know what you call it, defensive driving techniques. You find an empty parking lot and do donuts and J-turns and, and all that stuff. And uh, uh, either he would go do it or we would beat him to the punch and we'd ask him to do that. And, and, and essentially what we would say in, in the back seat was, hey, Pop, you know, snow's on the ground. Can, can we do donuts, you know, J-turns and all this stuff? And get a smile on his face and... Maybe there's a pause. Say, all right, buckle up, kiddos. Here we go. Let's do it. And what we're praying there is essentially is, is, is show, me, show me your glory, right? Show off for us 
Uh, we want to experience more of you, and we want to see what you can, what you can do. And what Moses, what the Lord does here, is he, uh, not only does he answer Moses' first prayer, he answers the second prayer. Isn't that crazy? And, and essentially he says, buckle up, Moses. You want to see my glory? Here we go. And this is what he says in uh, verse 19. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show mercy to whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you, can, where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not be seen. So that is the Lord predicting what is to come. In uh, the next four verses, we don't have time to read, but essentially uh, he gives instructions to Moses. And he says, all right, Moses, that's what's going to happen. What I need you to do before that happens, I need you to grab two uh, new stone tablets with nothing written on them. I need you to meet me in the morning on Mount Sinai. I'm going to put you in the cleft of a rock to protect you, giving you uh, front row seats to the best show on earth, and maybe some popcorn, some 3D glasses. Get ready to experience this. And then this is what takes place in verses uh, 5 through 9 of chapter 34. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take for us your inheritance. And I, I just read this and I think, man, how cool is this? How cool is this? What would it be like to be Moses in that instance? That God was just so gracious. God didn't have to do that. And yet God does that. And what's kind of odd, what's kind of interesting here, Moses asks to see God's glory. And often we think of God's glory as his, his beauty, his grandeur, his, his, his majesty, kind of like this ethereal light that we can't even comprehend, that if we saw the full face of it, the fullness of it, our head would explode. It would short, short circuit the human brain, right? But what, what we see here, what we learn about God's glory is that it's inextricably tied to his goodness. His goodness. He says, I will cause my goodness to pass before you. Moses said, I want to see your glory. And God says, I'll proclaim my name, the Lord, the Lord, which is inextricably tied. His name is tied to his nature, who he is. And then he expounds upon, this is my name, the Lord, self-existing, eternal God of the universe. And let me show you a little bit about myself. Let me proclaim to you who I am. And so Moses prays, show me your glory. And the Lord says, you want to see my glory? Well, first let me tell you about myself. Because my perfect character and my goodness is my glory. And here's what we learn about this, this God is that he's merciful and gracious, Transit Church. The very first thing he said to Moses is that. He could have said a whole lot of other things first. But what we learn in Scripture is that the very first things he decides to reveal about his, his character and his nature to Moses is that I'm a God who abounds in mercy and grace. And everything that follows from that flows from mercy and grace. 
It's first, and it is the source of every other attribute that we see in this text. He's, he's merciful and gracious, therefore he's slow to anger. He's patient. Thank God for that. That's the reason the Israelites are still breathing in this text is because of God's mercy and grace and that he's slow to anger and compassionate. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, abounding. If you read uh, uh, Ephesians 1, it talks about the immeasurable riches of the kindness of God made manifest to us in Christ Jesus. That uh, uh, I had this picture in my, in my quiet time earlier uh, this week where uh, an Amazon package, we get like an Amazon package every, every day, it seems like, but I almost tripped over it. It was, like, it was like early in the morning, like 6 a.m., and I opened the door, I almost tripped over the, it was like, man, Amazon, they work 24 hours, right? And um, I, uh, just, to, just to, to be honest, I wrote at the top of my journal in that quiet time this morning, I said, is God angry with me? This is just what we struggle with, right? If you're honest, like sometimes you just feel like, you know, God can be angry. And so I wrote that at the top of my journal. I said, God, would you reveal to me the answer to this question? Because I know theologically what the answer is, but would you? And I just felt led to go to Ephesians 1. And I just read Ephesians 1, and I'll turn to it now. This is completely not in my notes, but just deal with it. Um, Ephesians 1 says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual, and, and immediately where my mind goes, I always think through illustrations. There's the Amazon warehouse full of spiritual blessings that never ends for the saints, for the sons and daughters of Jesus Christ. And every day when we wake up, our front door is stacked to the brim of his heavenly blessings in Christ Jesus. So much so that we can't, we can't even get out of our house. We're tripping over, tripping over his uh, abundant grace and blessing and riches and kindness in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord. That's our God. He abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. He forgives our iniquities and transgressions and sins. And what we learn here too, the last thing that God says is I'm a just God as well. I cannot be a God of love without being a God of justice. And where we see all of those attributes to me is on the cross of Jesus Christ. That's where we see the full manifestation of God's glory is in the person and work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And so what we see here, what I love about this, is that God not only talks to talk, he doesn't just you know, cause his goodness to pass through and, and talk about you know, who he is uh, to Moses. He doesn't just reveal that, but, he, but he, he walks the walk. And what we see God do immediately following this is he renews the covenant with an unfaithful people. That's crazy. It wasn't how, it wasn't, what's crazy, it's not how unthinkable the Israelites' actions were, it's how unthinkable God's actions were here. And renewing his covenant with a people prone to wander. And see, what we, what, we, what we learn here in this text is Israel's story easily could have ended with the two tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments, shattered and broken. That could have been their story. That could have been it. Boom, done, ended. You violated the covenant. You committed treason. I can no longer be in your midst. That could have been their story. And what does uh, our God who abounds in mercy and grace is he doesn't leave, he stays. And he not only stays, he doesn't leave the tablets shattered. He goes and he tells Moses, bring up two new tablets of stone, nothing written on them, two blank slates, because I'm going to rewrite the story of the people of God. 
I'm rewriting the story. I don't leave your story broken and shattered. I'm gonna be the one who rewrites your story. Anyone here today have their story rewritten by God? Is that not the reason we're here this morning is because we're crying out, we're saying, we're identifying that we're in Christ, that God has rewritten our stories, Transit Church. That's the most unthinkable thing about this text is that God's renewing uh, his covenant with the unfaithful, adulterous people. And this is what he says in Exodus 34.10. I love this. Hadn't, I hadn't seen this until I started working on this, this, uh, this sermon this week. And he said, after he shows Moses his glory, he says, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels, such as have, as, as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. And listen to this. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Oh, is that not good news, Transit Church? That's his, that was his promise to Moses. That was his promise to Israel. Is this an awesome thing? I, I, the Lord, not you, I, the Lord, am going to do with you. And that's the promise we have in Christ Jesus. Transit Church, do you believe that this morning? If you're here today and you're stuck and you can't get unstuck from sin, do you believe God's word, God's promise to you that he's going to do an awesome thing? with you. That's our hope. See, I think oftentimes in our stories of redemption, we place our hope horizontally. You maybe place it in certain groups or brotherhoods or sisterhoods or accountability. That's where we place our, our hope. Listen, accountability only goes as far as, as, as much as you're willing to be honest. We, maybe we place it uh, uh, in, in accountability software or, or just all these other things, horizontal areas where we place our hope saying, this is where my hope lies for my redemption. It's not, it's vertical. Our only hope in our story of redemption is this covenant faithful God who remains faithful to us even in the midst of our unfaithfulness to him. That's our hope. That's our hope, Transit Church. And I just absolutely love that last line. It is an awesome thing I will do with you. And, and, and so he renews the covenant here with Moses, and, and, and Moses uh, gets a mulligan. The, the, the Israelites get a mulligan, and Moses now uh, descends from Mount Sinai, with, uh, with the Ten Commandments. And this time when he descends, he, it says at the end of 34, we don't have time to read it, he's glowing. He's radiating. Why? Because he's been with the Almighty God. Right? He's coming down the mountain sunburned. You ever see someone who spent way too much time in the sun and it's hard to look at? It's just painful to look at? Moses is glowing. He's mirroring, reflecting uh, the glory that he just beheld right? So much so that the Israelites are like putting on their Ray-Bans and uh, Moses has to put on a veil because they can't even handle it. It's an awesome thing that I will do with you. And uh, I'll conclude with 2 Corinthians 3, 12 through 18. This is the Apostle Paul talking about this incident uh, of Moses uh, coming down the mountain. And this is what he says, our promise is in Christ Jesus. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses who put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, all a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now listen, verse 17, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, transit church. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This is 
the awesome thing that God does with his people is he transforms us from one degree of glory to the next. And so in Christ Jesus, trans church, it's an awesome thing that God has done for us. It's an awesome thing that he's doing in our lives, and it's an awesome thing that he will do when we pass from this life to the next and forever. We're fixing our gaze upon him. That's the end goal of our redemption. That's our only hope when it comes to our redemption is not focusing on our sin and putting it to death as much as it is fixing our gaze upon Christ and beholding his beauty and saying, Lord, show me your glory. And so with that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we're just blown away that you are God who, who stays faithful to an unfaithful people. Lord, I pray, God, that you would forgive us. We confess our idolatry here this morning. We're so prone to wander. We're daily bombarded with distractions and the call of the enemy in our lives. Father, so we come before you with nothing to offer but our confession. Lord, may we come to you with repentant, contrite, humble hearts. I pray for the man or the woman here today who, uh, who has not yet felt the, the, the weight of their sin. Lord, would they, would they to morning, this morning feel that, Lord? Holy Spirit, come upon this congregation and help us to realize how awful our sin is and yet and yet how awesome your love is for us. It, it hunts us, it chases us, it pursues us, Lord. May we be blown away by your gospel this morning and may it be you and you alone that we put our trust in resting in the promise, resting in the promise that you uh, have promised to do an awesome, awesome thing with us in Jesus. So pray this in your name. Amen.